Welcome everyone to the Economy Ninja Podcast. I am your host, Colin Nordman. This is a podcast where I go digging for little nuggets of knowledge and I bring them here to share with you. I also want to thank everyone that has provided feedback so far for the podcast and everybody that's provided some support. Uh, I am going to be trying to make changes as we go along and we are building this plane as we're flying it. Today, we continue our discussion about money. Whereas in the last episode we focused on history, this episode will highlight key points that are critical to understanding the value of money and the modern world. And this might sound crazy, but I'm going to venture to guess that less than 1% of the U.S. population really understands money and what impacts it. So if you could stick with me through this video, the payoff will be worth it. You'll be part of a pretty exclusive club. Also, I'm not a financial advisor, and this is not financial advice. So with that, it's business time. After the U.S. and the world went off the gold standard in 1971, all dollars became fiat currency. Fiat currency is a medium of exchange that is not redeemable for something that provides a fixed store value. In the case of the gold standard, it was gold. So how do we know how to value the dollar today? One explanation could be that the intrinsic worth of a fiat currency is only the value of the paper that it's printed on. But yet, after 50 years, with recessions and market crashes, the dollar is still here and it's still one of the strongest currencies in the world. That's because the value of any currency, even a fiat currency that seems intrinsically worthless, is dependent on demand. If people want dollars, then those dollars have value. Or alternatively, if people need dollars, then they're going to have value. So why would people need dollars? Well, that's because, like most sovereign nations, uh, you can only transact and pay your taxes or your debts that are denominated in those dollars with that country's currency. And since 1971, the amount of debt denominated in U.S. dollars has grown significantly. The federal government has significant debt Foreign and domestic corporations have borrowed huge sums of U.S. dollars, and the public of the United States carries debts with credit cards, mortgages, student loans, and auto loans. It is this concept that of demand for fiat, uh, driven by debt, that is at the heart of why fiat currencies don't immediately collapse. And I say not immediately, because history is not too kind to fiat currencies, and eventually all of them fail or are replaced. So let's return to the discussion of money supply and money printing. I'm going to briefly outline three definitions. So just stick with me on this. All right, there's the monetary base, uh, which is the money in circulation and in reserves at the Fed. Uh, there's the M1 money supply, which is the closest thing to cash, 
Uh, it's money that's held by the public in checking and savings accounts or money that can be readily used uh, for transactions. And then there's the M2 money supply, which is everything that was in the M1, so everything that's basically cash, and then anything that's almost cash, uh, which includes time deposits and money market funds. So things that might take some time to actually convert it back into cash. So for our discussion, we'll talk about the money supply. We'll be referring to the M2 money supply, which is the closest uh, representative total of money in the economy. Now, changes to the money supply are not done by the Fed pushing some button that says print money or by them moving a lever to set interest rates. It's easy to be confused by how this process actually works, but let's break it down. For this process to work, there has to be debt. So it starts with Congress and their power to lay and collect taxes, as well as their power to borrow money. Normally, uh, it would be desirable to have enough revenue from tax receipts to cover the expenses plant. However, if there is a deficit in the government budget, then the U.S. Treasury will raise money by selling Treasury bonds at auction. Buyers at these auctions are going to be foreign central banks uh, and foreign investors, as well as domestic banks and domestic investors like uh, pension funds. Now, money is not created or destroyed here. It just moves around from one place to another. So the buyers of the treasury bonds give their money to the government in exchange for the bonds, and then the government spends that money back out into the economy uh, in accordance with their budget that was passed by Congress. The money supply only really changes when the Federal Reserve gets involved. And they're primarily interested in maintaining their dual mandate of stable prices and maximizing employment. So it's when the economy is slowing. Uh, here, the Federal Reserve will try to lower interest rates in the economy to spur borrowing. Since Increased borrowing is one of the ways to inject growth into the economy. When people borrow to start businesses, more jobs are created, personal incomes increase, more products are consumed, etc. If interest rates are already lower, the process takes on a different name called quantitative easing, uh, or QE for short. But the spoiler is, as I'll talk about in a little bit, QE and lowering interest rates are the exact same thing. So what does the Fed actually do? Well, Section 14 of the Federal Reserve Act outlines the Fed's powers of open market operations. What the Fed can do is buy Treasury bonds from commercial banks who originally bought them from the U.S. Treasury at an open auction. This is what it is happening when people talk about the Fed printing money. When the Fed buys bonds through the open market operations, it has the effect of removing bonds from the open market supply. All this is supply and demand. So there's fewer bonds available for other buyers, so the prices of bonds go up. When the prices of bonds go up, the yields of bonds go down because they share an inverse relationship. Market interest rates follow treasury yields, uh, making borrowing more appealing. And presto, the Fed saves the day 
and growth returns to the economy. Well, sometimes. Now here is the critical aspect to understand about this money printing. This is, this is the real payoff, so please listen close. The money that the Fed pays commercial banks doesn't go directly to that bank. It's put into a reserve account for that commercial bank, but maintained at the Fed. This means this money only increases the monetary base. The total money supply, on the other hand, is a multiple of the monetary base, but is largely dependent on fractional reserve banking. And fractional reserve banking only happens when banks lend money. So for the money supply to actually change, two things must be true. People have to want to borrow money, and banks have to want to lend money. The Federal Reserve can do as much as it wants, but it can't make, it can't force those two things to happen. And there you have it, the value of money. It's all just supply and demand, where supply is the real money supply, and not just reserves that are at the Fed, and demand is debt. We all have got bills to pay. There's no shortage of dollar demand. That's our show for today. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening. Uh, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please uh, like it and subscribe to it. Uh, you can also find Economy Ninja Podcast on Twitter, at Colin Nordman. Uh, and on YouTube, where I'll be uploading all of the videos I record for this podcast. Thank you again, and have a good day.